0: Welcome to episode 61 of the RSA resident and student podcast series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine, Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Naduka Vernon, a M4 currently completing his MPH at Emory University School of Medicine, As well as an AEM RSA Advocacy Committee member, speaks with Dr. Taryn Taylor, the Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Emergency Medicine at Emory University School of Medicine. Today, Dr. Taylor and Mr. Vernon discuss experiences for women of color in the emergency department.
1: All right, so today we have an exciting podcast on which we'll be hearing from Dr. Taryn Taylor, a pediatric emergency medicine faculty member at Emory University School of Medicine, as she shares some insight into some of the experiences of women of color in the emergency department. Uh, Just a short uh, introduction, Dr. Taryn Taylor uh, completed her pediatric residency training and pediatric emergency medicine fellowship at Johns Hopkins Hospital. She also completed her master's in education at the University of Cincinnati. She joined Emory University as faculty in 2008 and has since served as a physician in the Pediatric Emergency Department. Additionally, Dr. Taylor serves nationally as an AAMC Lead Faculty Coach and locally at Emory University School of Medicine as Chair of Education for the Division of Pediatric Emergency Medicine. She has won both institutional and regional awards for her dedication and innovation as a medical educator. Dr. Taylor is also a proud member of the Gwinnett County alumni chapter of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. So, Dr. Taylor, thanks again for joining us, taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with us today.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be able to participate.
1: So with that, let's go ahead and hop right into some of the questions that we have. Absolutely. But first, uh, just based on your experiences uh, and the experiences of others with whom you may be familiar what concerns might a woman of color have related to her health care when seen in an urgent or emergent setting?
2: That is a very interesting question. I think uh, that people of color historically have viewed the healthcare system with some bit of skepticism. Uh, It stems to what many are familiar with in terms of research studies that have exploited people of color. But even further back, when you think about perhaps the antebellum period, When dead black bodies were robbed from their graves to perform uh, medical experiments, or even the Reconstruction era when uh, white slave owners thought that freed slaves were not going to be able to psychologically be able to cope with freedom, all of those things have historically created a multi-generational bit of skepticism Mm -hmm. among people of color. Even to this day, we've all seen recent uh, images and, and heard stories in the media mm-hmm. where women of color have experienced um, bias in healthcare, care. Mm-hmm. And so to that end, we have multiple levels and experiences and um, historical factors that confound this answer. Mm-hmm. And so a woman of color presenting to an emergency department or mm-hmm. an urgent care setting already has that in the back of her mind. So she presents with questions such as, am I going to be believed? Am I going to be misdiagnosed? Are they going to listen to me? Are they going to judge me? Mm -hmm. And so many of those concerns preclude women of color, uh, first and foremost, to even seeking care. Uh, And when they do seek care, there are multiple levels that preclude that trusting relationship for the woman of color to establish with the physician that is Mm -hmm. providing her care.
1: For sure. So there are definitely a lot of deeply rooted issues that contribute to the differences and experiences that women of color might have. And do you have any uh, personal anecdotes or any anecdotes of those with whom you're familiar about such differences?
2: Sure. So I would say, um, before I answer that question, just Mm -hmm. to frame it, Mm -hmm. because I'm in a pediatric emergency department, Mm -hmm. uh, many of the anecdotes that come to me are not necessarily from the patients themselves, Mm -hmm. uh, but more so of the mothers, Mm -hmm. uh, the mothers of the patients. And the common feedback that I have heard, let me say that a number of women don't actually share disparaging remarks mm. for whatever reason. But when they do, they often feel like the physicians have made assumptions. Made assumptions perhaps about their uh, level of uh, socioeconomic status, mm-hmm. status or made assumptions about their healthcare literacy. And to that end, they have felt judged to a great degree contrarily one of the uh, positive things that we often hear you know in the united states the healthcare system in terms of physicians there are mm-hmm. very few physicians who are women of color and so when you see a patient in the emergency department or in my setting a parent, a, a mm-hmm. mother, um, they're so excited and that a common theme is, I am so glad my mm-hmm. child gets to see a role model like you, or I'm so glad that you're a sister mm-hmm. and you can understand where I'm coming from. And so while they may not necessarily share a number of disparaging remarks, the contrary is, is more often encountered when they're relieved to see someone who, that they, who they can really relate to.
1: Could you share a powerful story uh, that you've heard or experienced yourself that's related to this issue?
2: Actually, I do have one uh, that really, really has stuck with me over the years. Uh, I was able to participate in the care of a teenage, uh, young African-American woman Mm -hmm. uh, who presented to the emergency department uh, with abdominal pain in the setting of her past medical history of sickle cell disease. And so let's pause for a minute and think globally, you have a teenage female with abdominal pain, and that's, that situation already is ripe for bias mm-hmm. when those patients present to the emergency department. And so then you add on to that layer that she's African-American and has a history of sickle cell disease, and so then you add another layer of potential bias. Um, so from a, a female with abdominal pain perspective, you mm-hmm. know, oh, my goodness, is she is she just being dramatic mm-hmm. um, or maybe, oh, she just has a sexually transmitted infection. These, unfortunately, are, are, are common sayings mm-hmm. in an emergency department. Mm-hmm. And then she has sickle cell disease. Oh, is she just drug seeking? Um, oh, her pain score can't be a 10 because she's texting on her phone. And so, you know, you have this patient encounter that is ripe for bias. This young lady was managed for her abdominal pain and was discharged to home to continue her regular pain management for her sickle cell with the addition of Zantac for a presumed GERD component to her abdominal pain. Her pain score at discharge was still very high. And the argument was, well, she has sickle cell, so she lives with some level of pain every day. Well, as you could imagine, this particular patient returned to the emergency department with worsened pain. And uh, at this point, um, it was more defined as right lower quadrant pain her repeat lab work was suggestive of an inflammatory process as her inflammatory markers were elevated. And so then the concern obviously was, well, does she have appendicitis? And I remember very clearly the surgeon saying to me, sickle cell patients don't get appendicitis. I had never heard anyone say anything like that before. And I, I, was, I was taken aback ultimately guess what the young lady had some, uh, appendicitis and unfortunately uh, her management uh, was complicated by delayed diagnosis and so i think that is a to me a very powerful reminder for a number of things uh, number 1 that we can't define individuals Mm -hmm. by their chronic illness, number one, Uh, and, and number two, you know, here is someone who had, you know, the potential for multiple biases complicating her care and all the holes in the Swiss cheese lined up. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we have to be very, very careful. uh, And we also have to acknowledge and manage our own implicit bias so that situations like this aren't repeated. Mm -hmm. And the sad, the sad part about this is situations like that are repeated every day.
1: Well, thank you for sharing that. And that also feeds into our next question. You know, given the facts that uh, patients with the same disease can present differently, especially given your the example that you just gave. What are some practical tips for maintaining an open mind uh, when forming a differential?
2: I think that's a great question. I think many of us uh, use pattern recognition, uh, particularly in an emergency department setting. Mm-hmm. Well, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, chances are it's probably a duck. Um, however, that pattern recognition uh, lends itself often to the cognitive biases of anchoring bias mm-hmm. um, and premature closure. Mm-hmm. Um, now, for those who are not familiar with what cognitive bias is, cognitive bias is a system systematic error in Mm -hmm. your thinking. And that can, again, in this example, lead to premature closure. So accepting a diagnosis Mm -hmm. before it's fully verified and anchoring bias uh, in which an individual relies too heavily in an initial piece of information. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the trap that many of us um, are uh, fall into with respect to pattern recognition. And so To that end, it's going to be very important that we approach each patient with a fully developed differential diagnosis, Mm -hmm. even if we are pretty confident we know the diagnosis Mm -hmm. to think through, okay, what things are most common in this situation, Mm -hmm. but what could possibly kill this patient? Mm -hmm. Um, And also, you know, have I ruled that out? In addition to that, thinking about, well, are there any other mimickers Mm -hmm. of this particular disease process Mm -hmm. that I need to consider and rule out as well? And so I think the key is is pushing ourselves uh, past those anchoring and premature closure biases Mm -hmm. uh, to fully develop our differential diagnosis, at least to make sure that we're ruling out the things that could be most harmful to our patients.
1: I'm sure that could be especially difficult in busy setting like oh my the emergency goodness. department. Absolutely,
2: yeah. quite a challenge, and even more a challenge, I think, to teach that. Mm-hmm. Um, many of us who have worked in emergency departments have uh, honed our skills to some degree, mm-hmm. um, but now the onus is on us not only to practice it, but mm-hmm. now to teach that mm-hmm. uh, to younger medical students and younger, more junior uh, physicians as well, mm-hmm. and to and to model that.
1: And so what do you think uh, are some of the ways that physicians can make women of color feel heard and comfortable in the emergency department setting? Uh, you sort of touched on the historical contributions to, to why women of color would feel uncomfortable. And you also sort of touched on some of the implicit biases that we have when dealing with people of different backgrounds. So what are some tangible ways that, that we can make women of color in particular feel comfortable?
2: Absolutely, I think that's an excellent question. Uh, I think I alluded to earlier us making assumptions when um, interacting with women of color in a healthcare setting, and so you know, first and foremost is is to check our assumptions at the door. It's not fair uh, to the patient, and uh, we often don't give our best selves as healthcare providers when we make assumptions, and so I think that's key. I think it's also important to enter into the conversation with a goal of engaging in shared decision-making. We can't make assumptions about the patient, or in my case, the, the patient's parent or mother we can't make assumptions about their level of healthcare literacy. And so making sure that we are engaging in shared decision making such that uh, we're not talking down to them as if they don't understand, that we're providing explanations very clearly, uh, but that we're doing it in a manner that is very respectful. Uh, that we open up the conversation to make sure that we are we have an agenda, but it may be very different from their agenda Uh, and uh, making sure that we address that even even as simply as incorporating the phrase in your uh, conversation. Are there any other concerns that you may have that I haven't addressed? Mm -hmm. And giving that that woman an, an opportunity to express those concerns and making sure that the conversation is not colored with judgment. Uh, I think that um, making sure that you explore any potential options that she she may be may have heard mm-hmm. her her fam- she may have looked up on the internet mm-hmm. she may have uh, a family member or a friend uh, who has encountered something similar mm-hmm. and so she may have come to the table with, her own suggestions Mm -hmm. or questions about treatment plans. Uh, And I think it's important that we recognize that uh, and engage in uh, conversations about that in a manner where she feels heard rather than proceeding through her care Mm -hmm. in the typical paternalistic way uh, that medicine has traditionally been patterned after.
1: Yeah, Yeah, that's great. And it sort of sounds like the root of it is is ensuring that your patients know that you're you're there looking out for their best interests
2: absolutely
1: um and so actually reassuring whether that's actually saying that i'm here for you and i want you to be a part of your care
2: and that was a great phrase yeah. i mean it's such a simple simple thing but as a patient mm-hmm. that would make me feel so much better Exactly. Um, especially as a woman mm-hmm. um, if i am engaging with a provider who mm-hmm. you know who may be a man, mm-hmm. um, or even another woman who may have a different life experience than me. Just mm-hmm. hearing them say, "Hey, you know what? Mm-hmm. We're gonna we're gonna approach this whatever problem or whatever healthcare challenge mm-hmm. together."
1: That's awesome. So, Doctor Taylor, uh, you come from a unique setting in the pediatric emergency department, uh, in which the socioeconomic factors that affect parents can have an impact on the care that their children receive. But I think that the lessons we can learn from the pediatric emergency department can still apply to our practice in the adult emergency department. So what do you think are the best ways to navigate the potential effects of socioeconomic factors outside of the emergency department on patient management in the acute setting? Uh, and a separate question, do you have any suggestions on how to best connect patients with the resources that they need?
2: Sure. I You know, I think that one of the first steps is recognizing that there are socioeconomic factors that are going to affect patient management. Mm-hmm. For example, one of the things that I hear physicians, learners, medical students complain about in my setting is, oh, my gosh, why is this mom bringing this patient mm-hmm. in at like three in the morning mm-hmm. via the ambulance mm-hmm. for some perceived minor complaint. But do we take a moment to really think about, you know, this may seem like a minor complaint, but this kid can't go back to daycare or school until they have a doctor's note. Well, this mom works all day. And so the only time that she has available to her mm-hmm. to bring the the child in for evaluation is after work hours. You know, I I <laughs> I'm a pediatric uh, physician by training. But I can't even tell you how long the wait is for my daughter to get seen by her pediatrician. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, do these mothers have the ability to wait that long to get seen by their primary care physician? Or is there such an urgency because they've got to go to work? They've got to get their kid back in school. Mm -hmm. So they've got to manage it some way. And at 3 a.m., They don't have the money to pay for an Uber, Yeah, you know, so they've got to call EMS. And so do we take a moment to think about their struggle? Mm -hmm. And and I shouldn't say struggle, um, but do we take a moment to think about the way they have strategized to navigate their situation? Mm -hmm. Uh, Oftentimes the answer is no. And so we see these patients in the emergency department and we're like, "Oh, well, I'm not going to provide refills. They need to go see their primary care physician for that. Well, what are the barriers? Let's take a moment and take stock in what are the barriers for these uh, moms? And I say moms because, again, those are the women of color that we're primarily focusing on in this podcast. Mm -hmm. But what are the barriers Mm -hmm. that they that they may experience? And simply asking the question, you know, ma'am, this is this is the proposed treatment plan. How do you feel about that? Are there any barriers? Do you think you'll be able to follow up? With your primary care physician Mm -hmm. or are there any challenges with that Mm -hmm. um i'm going to say that you know you need a referral to a subspecialist do you even have the availability to get into your primary care physician to then get the referral and then get to the subspecialist or is there uh is there another a way that I can help best support you in that. The healthcare system is difficult to navigate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, have we taken an opportunity to explain it? Many people. Regardless of their um, healthcare literacy, they don't really understand what a resident is yeah. or, or what a fellow is. Um, and so, have we taken the opportunity to, to help them navigate the healthcare system as a whole? Mm-hmm. So, I think the first step is acknowledging that there are socioeconomic factors. And then the next step is very um, openly and non judgmentally having that conversation mm-hmm. and asking the patient or the patient's parent are there any barriers in you achieving this treatment plan yeah. how can i best support you yeah. in achieving this and i think that is that is one of the best steps and i think that that is a way to build trust mm-hmm. with the patients and, and connect with them. Mm-hmm. And then you can take that and connect them with the resources. And the, the beauty of it is, is that as physicians, we don't have to know all of the resources. We just have to know who to know.
1: Yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. We
2: just have to know who to reach out to in terms of, this is the emergency department case manager mm-hmm. who can reach out to you and help you facilitate making these follow-up appointments or this is the emergency department financial counselor Mm -hmm. who can help you figure out how to to navigate making sure that all the i's are dotted and t's are crossed with respect to your insurance Mm -hmm. or um you know here is the emergency department social worker Mm -hmm. who may help you be able to provide vouchers Mm -hmm. uh, for the medication that i'm going to prescribe you know I, i remember personally Looking at the pharmacist like he was crazy when he charged me so much (laughs) for my daughter's flow vent Um, and I have great insurance. And so oftentimes we don't necessarily consider that Mm -hmm. uh, when we're prescribing medications to our patients. Uh, But if we first. Take a moment and mm-hmm. recognize that there are all of these factors mm-hmm. that affect patient care. And while we aren't responsible for necessarily managing all of that, mm-hmm. it is our duty to recognize it, have the conversation, and then point the patient to the best resource.
1: So all of that was great. I, I really appreciate that that insight. An emergency uh, department, you know, tensions are High emotions are running rampant. Of course. And, you know, in the setting of burnout, how do we as students, uh, residents, attendings, how do we go about maintaining an open mind, uh, maintaining open dialogue with our patients and really remembering uh, to keep in mind that people come from different backgrounds and have experiences that are different from ours?
2: I wish that that was an easy answer to provide, uh, but it is not. Um, I think that the first piece of that is, is wellness for ourselves whatever that looks like, making sure that uh, we are nimble and flexible and that we recognize uh, our trigger points. Mm -hmm. We recognize um, that uh, we are getting our frustration and our tolerance is low Mm -hmm. and taking a moment to first address those things in ourselves, uh, because that's human nature. Uh, And I think that it also really requires us to have skin in the game, mm-hmm. to recognize that this is more than just a job. This is um, a calling for many of us. Mm-hmm. This is a career that many, hopefully most of us went into with a passion mm-hmm. and a desire to really serve, uh, to help, to heal. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important to, from time to time, take stock, recognize where you are mentally and acknowledging what space you are in. And if you're not in a great space, mm-hmm. take a moment. Yeah. Uh, but then recognizing why we're here, why, why we are dedicated to this job. Uh, and it takes uh, being very intentional and strategic Uh, And we're not and recognizing that we need to extend grace to ourselves because we're not going to get it right every Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the more we put it into practice, the more we uh, attempt to acknowledge our own implicit bias, uh, the more we uh, take a moment and really sit down uh, and have those transparent conversations with our patients, uh, the more it will become habit and routine.
1: So, this has all been great so far. And I really wanted to touch on education um, that we receive as students currently. What do you think, uh, from your experience as a medical student or from your interactions with current medical students, what do you think is missing uh, in education, medical education, particularly related to the issues that we've discussed? So, uh, discrimination against, in particular, women of color, uh, and the socioeconomic factors that contribute to Uh, the uh, health effects in patients that we see in the emergency department.
2: Well, I'm actually going to turn the question around and ask you, have you ever uh, been encouraged to take implicit bias uh, testing of any sort Mm -hmm. during medical school?
1: Yeah, so we we had a course or I guess a, a session. Early on in uh, my second year, Mm -hmm. where we did talk about, I think it was the Harvard implicit bias testing. Absolutely. We didn't actually take it though. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was about a two hour long session. Mm -hmm. And that was two
2: hours out of your medical school career?
1: Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yeah. And that was about the extent of our conversation regarding bias. Uh, I think the socioeconomic factors. They're sort of sprinkled in here and there when when we talk about chronic diseases for adult patients. Um, But that uh, my knowledge regarding socioeconomic factors has really come from my experience at the uh, School of Public Health where I'm at right now.
2: Have you ever spent time with a social worker?
1: Honestly, I think for a little for like a day. That's about it. Day, Yeah. For a day. Out of
2: your entire medical school career. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you ever really taken the time to kind of explore what it takes for a patient to go to the emergency department and then follow up and then maybe get referred outpatient? Have you ever navigated that process? That's
1: not a part of our our curriculum. Right.
2: Exactly. Um, So I think there is, um, and I say this uh, really because I'm excited because that's an opportunity for growth. Mm -hmm. That's an opportunity for us to make a difference in curriculum, to extend these not only implicit bias training, but bystander training uh, to to be more robust, right? To Mm -hmm. expose our students to Um, some of these uh, resources uh, that are provided, you know, how many uh, resources do you have in your back pocket to provide (laughs) for mental health Mm. if your patients are experiencing mental health challenges?
0: Probably very few,
2: right? But if, uh, you know, you're going into a career in emergency medicine, I guarantee you there are going to be, you know, very few weeks where you experience a patient encounter Mm -hmm. who's not going to need those resources, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And so I think there's a lot of opportunity for growth in terms of education, uh, within the medical school curriculum, to to expose our students to um, not only again bias and, and and bystander training, but also exploring what are the resources for socioeconomic you know patients who may experience socioeconomic challenges, mm-hmm. and how do you even have those conversations without feeling that internal angst and concern about gosh, am I saying the right thing? Yeah. Um, I think all of those are avenues to explore within the curriculum. And I think now is an exciting time because Mm -hmm. uh, I think that, you know, medical schools are are open uh, to implementing those types of curriculum plans for their
1: students. Yeah, definitely. Well, Dr. Taylor, that was all very insightful. Again, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us. If you like to add any more words feel free to do that.
2: Oh, well, I just want to say thank you again for inviting me. This was a lot of fun. This is a topic that I personally am very passionate about because mm-hmm. uh, not only am I uh, a woman, mm-hmm. but a woman of color. Okay. And I have mom, grandma, aunties, sisters, uh, nieces, etc., cetera, um, who, who experienced this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not only do I want to make sure um, that my family and friends and those whom I hold dear um, are able to navigate the healthcare system uh, in a positive way? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important uh, that we make changes uh, to our current healthcare approach so that all women of color have positive experiences um, and establish very trusting relationships mm-hmm. uh, with their healthcare providers. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that's great. Again, thank you, Dr. Taylor. With that, we'll end the podcast here. Uh, Take care, everyone.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Emergency Medicine, Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, visit the website at www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.